You ready to hear from the Word of God, saints? Amen. Would you join us as we stand for the reading of God's Word? The scripture reading is from Second Peter, third chapter, verses one through five, and then verse ten through fourteen. Hear now the word of God. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given to our Lord, given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Family, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So from the start, let's make something clear. There are a lot of different ways that we can understand Jesus' return, and almost every one of them has some solid biblical evidence behind it. So let's not bore each other with details about this theory or that. Instead, let's talk about some of the things that we can agree about. Christians for almost 2,000 years unanimously have been proclaiming that Jesus would come and set things right. That involves at least two things. Jesus will come and his chief duty will be to judge the nations. And he'll come back to restore creation, to restore it to its intended glory. So from the very beginning of time, God planned it this way, for Jesus to come back and to make things right. That gives us hope. That's really what Jesus' second coming is all about, to restore hope in our lives. When our lives are difficult, when we're going through hard times, we can have hope that the future is real. Without that hope, we really don't have any reason to believe in Jesus if he's not coming back to rule supreme. So Jesus is returning, and therefore we can have hope. Amen. So uh, why is Matt Barnes in the video there sharing this good news about Jesus is coming again on a football field? Any ideas? I'll give you one clue. He's from Texas. But you'll need to watch the video to find out more. So I, I hope you'll do that. Go on and, and see some of this uh, great material that's been prepared for us. Friends, we are in the home stretch of our Shared Faith series 
going deeper into our statement of faith and the essentials of the gospel that unite us together in this amazing family we call the church, the body of Christ. And the image of the church as the body of Christ is an important and meaningful image. But the Bible uses other images, and I love the image of the church as the bride of Christ. Look at Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, here, Paul compares the relationship of a man and woman in marriage to the relationship of Christ and the church as his bride, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. How are husbands to love their wives? Just as Christ loved his bride, the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in the book of Revelation, we read about an actual wedding that will take place between Christ and the church. And Christ in this passage is identified as the Lamb of God. In Revelation 19, verses 7 and 9, it says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Then the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. How does the church make herself ready for the wedding? By doing some of the things we've spoken about in the past eight weeks and in the recent articles of our Statement of Faith, the unity and diversity of this community joining together in love for one another, in love for Jesus Christ, by being a place where God's truth from His Word is spoken in love, where true worship takes place, by being a people who have banded together to obediently follow Christ and participate in his mission of redeeming a lost world. Last week's article spoke directly to this mission and how the church is part of God's plan to bring salvation to as many people as possible. He has told us to go and make disciples, to bear fruit to live out our faith with compassion toward the poor, to bring justice for the oppressed, combating the spiritual forces of evil. And so we do it. We do it. We are a people on a mission from God, at least for now. But there will come a time when this mission will end. There will be no more going. There will be no more evangelism. No more disciple making. An important part of building the body of Christ is preparing the church as the bride of Jesus Christ. There's a wedding coming. And as Ephesians 5 says, Jesus is the one who is preparing us. He is making us holy, cleansing us so that we will be the radiant church a bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. So the church is a bride in waiting. But what are we waiting for? We are anticipating the return of Jesus as he comes to take his bride. 
Now, I've done a lot of weddings, and I've never met a bride-to-be that wasn't planning and preparing for their wedding. Usually it's all they talk about. And the mother of the bride, too. So, this morning, as a bride-to-be, let's allow ourselves to think a bit about the wedding, okay? Now, in two weeks, I know this is hard to believe, but we will start the Christmas season. Did you know that? It's already in the stores. The music is on the radio. And I will have to confess something. I might, I might get in trouble for this. But yesterday was my wife's birthday. And it has become our tradition in our home. On my wife's birthday, guess what we do? We put up the Christmas tree. <laughs> I know. So at the Seacrest home, Merry Christmas. <laughs> Now, another word for Christmas, the Christmas season, is Advent, which means coming. And it's a time for us to prepare for Christmas, to anticipate the celebration of Christ's first coming. And it's good for us to do this. The season of Christmas has become an important time in our churches and in our culture. But the Bible talks about a second coming of Jesus, an event that will be quite different than his humble birth. It will be an event that instantly and dramatically changes the world around us. An important part of being the church is preparing for it. It's not a secret. God wants us to know certain things about these future events. And so he has given us what we call prophecy. And when we celebrate Christmas... We will have an Advent wreath up here with candles we'll light each week. And the first candle we light is called the prophecy candle. It is to remind us of how God prepared the way for Jesus' birth through Old Testament prophecy. These prophecies were like hints that God kept dropping and they were given so that God's people would know who the Messiah was and when and where he would come. But what happened? At the advent, the first advent of Christ, the coming of his birth, what happened? First, some people had hope in a coming Messiah, but very few were listening or looking. They were so busy, consumed with life, that they weren't paying attention or they were looking for something different. And so they missed it. Two, many people had given up. It had been 400 years since there had been any news or word from God and most people had forgotten or given up that there ever would be a Messiah. And so they missed it. Most of the people in the world were totally unaware that there was such a thing as a Messiah. They didn't know God's word or his promises. And so they missed it. And while many missed the advent of his birth, we don't want to be caught sleeping when he comes again. So today, let's think like a bride about this glorious and personal return of our Lord Jesus Christ, which we affirm together in Article 9 of our Statement of Faith. If you have your Bible, please turn to Second Peter 3, which was read earlier. Now, the primary application of this passage is this. Because Christ is coming again, we are to live holy and godly lives. But there's a broader principle which I think Peter is communicating, and that is our view of the future shapes the way we live in the present. Don't you think that's true? 
And since we're approaching Christmas, I'm going to use an example that has impacted children for many years. It fits in this category of how our view of the future shapes the way we live in the present. So, let's think about this concept of Santa Claus. Now, forgive me for talking about this at church, but I think you will see the point soon. Now, think about the words to this song that every kid I grew up with learned how to sing. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. All right. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. Now, here's where it gets interesting. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So, be good for goodness sake. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Very good. You learned that too. Wow, from the sound of that song, Santa is a pretty powerful guy. And as a child, knowing that Santa was making a list, he was checking it to see if I had been naughty or nice, the fact that he knew when I was sleeping or awake, if I was bad or good, whew, that motivated me to be good. It absolutely affected my behavior, at least around Christmas time. The same was true with birthdays and other times when my behavior would be held accountable. Well, this morning is not about a Santa Claus who is all-knowing and all-powerful, but about a God who is, who knows us, who created us, who loves us, and who has entrusted to us a great mission and who will come to gather his people, to raise the dead, to judge the nations, and to bring fulfillment uh, his kingdom. His name is Jesus, and he is coming to town. Amen? He's coming again. So, this Christmas season, whenever you hear that song now, you can just plug in Jesus Christ is coming to town. And the fact that Christ is coming again ought to make a difference in how we live. It should make a difference in the church, it should affect our behavior. So Peter tells us the purpose for his letter in 2 Peter 3, verse 1, to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. The church had been persecuted from the outside. This was a primary theme in his first letter. And now the church was being attacked from within as well by false teachers, by scoffers. These were people who were denying that Christ would come again. And as a result, they were following after their own evil desires. Now, Peter said he wrote this letter as a reminder, there in verse 1. And I think Peter would have us remember two things. First, the fact, Christ is coming again. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. It will happen. That should be our primary view of the future. The Bible is clear that there will come a day when Jesus the Messiah returns to judge heaven and earth and to rule as king. 
Both the Old Testament and the New Testament are full of promises about the second coming of Christ. I encourage you to go on the Shared Faith site of our webpage and read Pastor Greg's commentary on this article where you'll get much more detail and many more scripture references about the second coming. There are over 1,800 references about the second coming in the Old Testament. 300 references in the New Testament. That means that one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament is about the second coming of Christ. For every one prophecy about the first coming, there are eight prophecies about the second coming. This is something God wants us to know about. He wants us to think about it. He wants it to to shape how we live our lives, anticipating this. But even so, if you look at verse 2, Peter affirms the words of the prophets and of Jesus and the other apostles. And then he says in verse 3, in spite of all of this testimony and evidence, there will be scoffers. People who will deny the fact that Christ is coming again. As we look at the text, what do we learn about these scoffers? According to Peter, they misunderstand two things. First, they have a naturalistic view of the universe. Beginning in verse 4, it says, They will say, Where is this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But Peter says, They deliberately forgot that it hasn't always been this way. It was by the power of God's word that the heavens and earth were created. This same power brought judgment and destruction during the flood. And it's the same powerful word which will judge all the earth by fire in the future. God has shown himself throughout history, but the scoffers deny it. They minimalize it. They deliberately forget it. They have a naturalistic view of the universe, similar to many people today. So, it may also be true that our view of the past also shapes the way we live in the present. You see, healthy living requires a good sense of time-depth perception. We live in the present, but we must remember the past and we must anticipate the future. In fact, the failure to remember the past or learn from the past and the inability to prepare or anticipate the future, these are serious deficiencies that will hinder our understanding of the gospel, they will hinder our understanding of God's word, and they will hinder our ability to live as God intended. Secondly, these scoffers misunderstand the reason for God's apparent delay. Look at verses 8 and 9. They don't understand that God does not view time as we do. He is outside of time. Therefore, a thousand years are like a day. A day is no shorter than a thousand years. Time is relative to God. And what to us seems like a delay or indifference is simply God's loving patience and waiting for more people to come to repentance. Therefore, the fact that for us, 2,000 years have gone by doesn't mean indifference or that he is not coming. God works on a different timetable than us. In verse 10, Peter affirms, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. 
And over and over again, Scripture affirms this fact. Jesus talks about it in Matthew 24, talking about the signs of the end of the age and talking about his return. Starting in verse 36 of Matthew 24, he says, But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. In verse 42, Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. It seems so clear that it is not in God's plan that we would know when he is coming, but that we would know with certainty that he is coming and that it could be at any time, like a thief in the night. This, this is a message we need to hear and remember today. But So often I find when this topic comes up, we're like the disciples in Acts chapter 1. We want to know when Christ is going to restore his kingdom and how he's going to do it. And it's okay to ask those questions, but sometimes that that debate has sadly divided the church. And it seems at times we have forgotten what Christ himself told the disciples in Acts 1, verses 7 and 8. It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. Do what God has commanded you to do. Spend your energy doing what you know is God's will. Be ready for his return every day. But don't speculate as to when he will come back. Just be confident of the fact that he is coming back. Do you ever think about that? Do you ever meditate on it? It will happen. The question is, are you ready? What is your view of the future? What is shaping your view of the future? Remember the sermon a few weeks ago on the authority of God's Word, Article 2? You remember the illustration about spiritual vertigo. There is a moral and spiritual fog in our world, and it can and does impact even us who follow Jesus. And it impairs our ability to discern right and wrong, to, to see what is true. We cannot just trust our gut feelings or even what others are saying. It's like a pilot who's flying blind in a storm. They need to look at their instruments and trust them. We need to look at our instruments, the Word of God, and believe it and trust it. We must check them adjust our lives, our beliefs, our behavior, and our view of the future according to His Word. And at Lake Avenue Church, 
We believe in the glorious and personal return of our Lord Jesus Christ because God's Word tells us it will happen. I encourage you to think about it, to meditate on it, and to be convinced that it's true. It will change your life. And I think this is what Peter wants us to do. He wants us to remember the fact that Christ is coming again. And then he reminds us that this fact should have a result in our lives. It should impact our church. And the result is we are to live holy and godly lives. Our study of future events is not to be a form of intellectual gymnastics, simply to stimulate our minds. It is to be the driving force behind a life of obedience, of holiness, of godliness. In talking about that day when Christ returns, Peter says in verses 10 to 12, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. The transitory nature of our world and universe, the fact that it will be destroyed, ought to make a difference in our system of values and our priorities. Is Second Peter 3 part of your belief system? Do you believe that it's true? If what Peter says is true, and I hold it as a deep conviction in my life, it should impact what I see as important in life. And then this in turn should have an impact on my behavior and on my goals in life. The result should be holiness, which is a separation from sin, a set-apartness for God. Godliness, being devoted to the worship and service of God, developing characteristics that are true of the children of God, reflecting the very nature of God. It's about having an eternal perspective. Jesus talked about storing up treasure in heaven, which cannot be destroyed either by moths or rusts or thieves or by this coming judgment. This is a critical message for our culture today, that materialism, which is an idol for many of us, is a dead-end street. Now, the Bible doesn't criticize money or material things. There's nothing evil about money per se. Paul says in 1 Timothy 6 that it's the love of money which is the root of all sorts of evil. So it's a matter of the heart. And if that's where our heart is, then we're not ready for Christ to return. And it seems to me that the message I keep hearing in Scripture is that we are to be ready because that day will come like a thief when no one is expecting it. We want to be like the faithful steward who is entrusted with responsibility. And when the master returned, that servant was told, well done, good and faithful servant. That's a motivating factor for me. But I don't live in reverent fear if I don't think I will be facing God. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that fear should be the primary motivator in our lives. 
This is central to the message of good news, that it's God's grace, His mercy, His kindness are what lead me to repentance. I know that in Christ I am complete. When that day comes, I know that I will stand before God, not on any merit of my own, but solely on the grace of God. I will be covered with the righteousness of Christ through faith. I approach the throne of God with confidence, not because of me, but because of what Christ has done for me. Do we understand that? That's good news. So I don't fear that God will not accept me. But I know that Scripture says that the works of my life will be tested as with fire. There is still an accountability which I have before a holy God for how I invest and live my life. There is a stewardship which God has entrusted to us. We are to be holy as He is holy. Look at verse 14. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. Listen, that, it doesn't just happen. You don't just wake up one day, wow, I'm spotless, blameless, and peace with Him. God is the one who's doing this work in our lives, but Peter says, make every effort. I'm not afraid that God will reject me. I have confidence in Christ and so can you, but I want to be like Paul who says in 2 Timothy 4, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith and he looked forward to his meeting with Christ. I want God to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Friends, this is not about being perfect. This is about making every effort. But to do that, we need an eternal perspective. Look at verse 13. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We need to see ourselves as citizens of heaven, as aliens and strangers here on earth. If our home is here on earth and if our hope is in this world only, we have no hope for it will all be destroyed. Our hope is in a new heaven and earth. And Peter says again that it is this hope and future which motivates us to holy and godly living. We need that eternal perspective. But I tell you what, we also need one another. We can't do this alone. I meet with a group of 10 plus guys every Thursday morning and part of our accountability with one another is to make sure we are making every effort and spurring one another on, uh, giving us a little nudge and even more when we need it and giving us a hug and, and prayer and encouragement because you can't get ready for the wedding alone. Therefore, it seems to me, when we start talking about end times, the future, the fact that Christ is coming again, the primary question we ought to be asking one another is not when and how it will happen, but rather, are we ready? Are we ready? Now, you don't need a seminary degree to answer that question. You don't need to know special theological language like Jeremy taught us. What was that? Eschatology. What you need is a life of faith and obedience. A life surrendered to the Lord. The fact that Christ is coming again should motivate us, 
seeing my Lord face to face. Imagine it. It will happen. It could happen any day. That motivates me. Our view of the future should shape how we live in the present. But if you don't believe these things, if this is not part of your view of the future, I guarantee you won't be motivated to live a holy and godly life. It's just too hard. It's too much sacrifice. It's too difficult. But when we know, we will see him. That motivates us. Listen to the words of the Apostle John from 1 John chapter 2 and 3. He says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. As a church, are we ready for the wedding? Jesus Christ is coming again. It could happen anytime. In fact, it could happen today. Do you believe it? Are you ready? I pray to God that we are all ready. The final words of our Bible are these, Revelation 22. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. May this be our prayer also. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your precious promises, your prophecy to us that you have let us know. You've not abandoned us. You have not let us alone. You are waiting patiently. You are at work. You have given us a stewardship. Lord Jesus, you are coming back and you will make all things right. Oh Lord, give us a fresh vision of your coming again. May that vision motivate us to holy and godly living. May it motivate us to complete the mission that you have given us to do. May we be found faithful when you come again, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.